Do you want to learn how to manage your own investments? Are you ready to stop paying investment management fees and start building wealth? The DIY Investing Podcast is dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, and resources you need to be a better investor. Learn how to make investments through the use of fundamental analysis, mental models, and business management insights. Now, here's your host, value investing expert, Trey Henninger. Hello and welcome to the DIY Investing Podcast. My name is Trey Henniger and I'm your host. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to get more great investing content. If you're listening on YouTube, also hit the like button on this video. And if you're listening on any other platform, your five-star rating and reviews go are a great way to help support the show. Thank you for your support. So today's topic is gap versus non-gap earnings. And I also am going to make this a deep dive on Amazon, which we'll be using as our example for today. And we're going to use numbers from Amazon in order to discuss the topic of gap in non-gap earnings, because I think this is a critical topic for investors to understand. And it is an often debated topic that can drastically change how investors value companies and drastically change how companies respond to and communicate with investors. I think this is going to be a topic that's relevant in an evergreen manner. However, you should expect this to be a very complex and complicated podcast. I'm going to be using numbers from Amazon's 2019 10K. This is available for free on the SEC Edgar website so that anyone wants to follow along, they can download this 10K. Um, it's certainly not required to follow along, but it's also useful in case after listening to this podcast, you want to go through and do your own calculations and use Amazon as a backdrop. So I hope not to lose you by using numbers, but I think when you're talking about the intricacies of accounting and different accounting systems, you have to use numbers in order to get your point across. Without the numbers, this is going to be a nonsensical podcast, but it also means that there's the complication of the medium. Since this is audio and I recognize many of my listeners will be listening, doing other things, whether it's driving a car, exercising, etc. Um, there's the complication that you're not going to be able to do that. So I'm going to try and do a very good job of communicating the numbers when I can, but also do a good job of talking about the concepts and simply using the numbers as an example and not having you need to understand all the numbers in order to get the meat of this podcast. <laughs> so I think that is enough of an introduction. So let's dive into gap versus non-gap earnings. The first thing to understand is what does gap mean? Gap is spelled G-A-A-P. And it stands for Generally Accepted Accounting Principles. Now, I think this is an important piece to spend a minute on. If you're going to deviate from GAP, you need to understand that you're, gen you're deviating from Generally Accepted Accounting Principles. Now, GAP is a U.S.-based, United States-based accounting system. Um, the IFRS is an international accounting system that's used and is certainly a non-GAP system, but it is a different system. But that's not normally what people mean when they refer to non-GAP. What they're referring to when you say a non-GAP earnings, you're referring to something like a company calculated free cash flow or company calculated EBITDA numbers or com a company calculated profitability that is based on adjusting away from reported net income. Companies have many legitimate and non-legitimate reasons why they would adjust the reported net income that would be required to be reported based upon um, generally accepted accounting principles or GAAP. However, although there are some legitimate reasons, I think that in general, investors are making a mistake when they use non-GAAP earnings. And one of the purposes of this podcast is to make my argument for why I think you should use and prioritize using gap earnings and communicate using gap earnings. It is not because they are infallible. It is not because there are not failings in them. But there is a wisdom to using 
accounting principles that are accepted and applicable across all companies. Now, there are situations where there is value to using other types of adjustments, but you need to make those adjustments yourself and not trust management to do so. Because what I want you to do and what I'm going to talk about is you need to think about the company and think about the earnings from the perspective of an owner and not from the perspective of a manager. This is very difficult to do, but what a company is doing when they adjust their earnings for you, it will depend by company. Some companies are better than others. I'd say Berkshire is a lot better than other, than most other companies. But typically what they're doing is they're trying to make their numbers look better for you as an investor because they're trying to sell themselves to you as an investor. So they're going to make their numbers look better than they are in an economic sense. What a manager is doing is they recognize that they work for investors and they're trying to make themselves look good, which means they're trying to massage away any mistakes and they're trying to, to massage away, massage up any positives they can find that make the numbers look better than they are. This means that although Gap has problems, the Gap earnings are useful and that they tend to be more conservative. They tend to eliminate massaging of numbers in some respects, certainly not all. People can still use gap numbers and make them be massaged and make them look better than they really are. And that tends to be present in frauds, but certainly non-frauds, managers know how they can massage numbers to make them look how they want. But as soon as you switch away from gap earnings to non-gap earnings, you're going to start having problems. And the problem is, is that you're going to be trusting others to do your work for you. As an investor, it is imperative that you investigate companies, you read the 10Ks, you calculate the intrinsic value of the company yourself. You don't read about it from an analyst report and take their numbers for granted. You don't take for granted the numbers you see in a press release. You don't take for granted the numbers you see in the company's investor presentation. You calculate the numbers yourself. And the numbers available for you in that way on the 10K are the gap numbers. Now they might have other tables that show adjustments between gap and non-gap and that's fine. But you need to start with the gap numbers because that is something that you can rely upon to be the same from one company to another. Gap earning, non-gap earnings at company A might be different than non-gap earnings at company B, which makes them non-comparable. So why this long discussion? Well, what people are doing, what investors do, so I talked a little bit about why managers would use non-gap earnings. What investors do and why they would use non-gap earnings is they're trying to get at something called owner's earnings. There's a difference between gap earnings, owner's earnings, and free cash flow. So gap earnings is what would many people call net income or earnings per share um, that you might see on the accounting statement. So when you see an income statement, it's going to have a net income line, and that's what I'm calling gap earnings. But what investors care about is they don't really care about gap earnings. They care about owner's earnings. Well, what are owner's earnings? Owner's earnings is the cash available to be distributed from the business today without impacting the competitive position of the business for the future. So another way of stating that is how much cash could the company pay out in dividends today if the business didn't grow and didn't shrink? So it's not just does the business not grow, but also does the business not shrink. And what happens here is there's going to be a gap between cash flow and owner's earnings. And there's going to be a gap between gap earnings and owner's earnings. Those numbers aren't the same. When people use the term free cash flow and they, people use the term gap earnings or earnings per share or net income, these are all meant to be an approximation or an attempt at approximating owner's earnings. Owner's earnings are the only thing that matter, but they are not shown anywhere on the accounting statements. They're not going to be shown on a gap statement and they're not going to be shown on a non-gap statement. It would be very rare for a company to present owner's earnings as a line item anywhere in their 10K. In fact, it's highly unlikely you'll find that word at all. But it is what matters. 
It's what matters to you as an investor, and you need to calculate it yourself. People will use terms like free cash flow instead of terms like earnings because they believe free cash flow is what matters to investors when it's really owner's earnings. Now, why would they do that? Because owner's earnings, if properly calculated, is the free cash flow. Free cash flow could be defined in the same way I defined owner's earnings. It's the cash flow available from operation that is available to be paid out to shareholders or used to be spent for things like growth. The problem is, is I see free cash flow calculated badly repeatedly throughout Twitter and throughout other investors when I'm talking to. They use very generic terms of free cash flow and they're not calculating it in the same way I would because they will assume something is free cash flow if you can't actually pay it out as dividends. Now, I don't mind if a company doesn't pay out the dividend. What I do mind is if they say that they have cash flow that could never be paid out as dividends. So, that's a lot of theory. Let's talk about Amazon. So Amazon is a very contentious company, and, and for me, I think it's contentious in one respect. It is very popular for many investors to own Amazon. It's one of the richest companies in the world in terms of market cap, yet it trades at an obscene price-to-earnings ratio that exceeds 100. And co- the common reason for that is that Amazon's stock price is not based on its earnings. It's based upon its growth. And it's based upon what people consider free cash flow from Amazon. And they believe free cash flow drastically exceeds Amazon's earnings. Which means not only does Amazon have high growth, but they have high free cash flow and their earnings are understated. That's the basic bull argument for Amazon. Amazon's growing quickly. It's able to grow for a long period of time, and it's able to, and its free cash flow substantially exceeds its earnings. So let's dive into that, and let's do this in a way that will allow us to answer why I believe gap versus non-gap earnings can be a problem. We're going to be using the 10K for Amazon from 2019 because, one, I don't care about 12 trailing 12 months earnings I wouldn't mind using trailing 12-month earnings, but the easiest way to look at it is to look simply at the last 12-month period that is collected all in a single financial statement, which is done with the 10K. So it means instead of worrying about, you know, Q3 of 2019, Q4 of 2019, and Q1 and 2 from 2020, we're simply going to worry about Q1 through 4 of 2019. This may slightly undervalue Amazon because Amazon is a growing company, but it isn't substantially going to undervalue Amazon. Even if Amazon's growing at 20 or 30%, that's a normal error range on evaluation, so it shouldn't be a problem for us today. Now, I'm recording this podcast in August of 2020. Um, it may or may not be released in August. It might be released um, in the very beginning of September. We'll see how that works out. Um, So if the numbers for stock price and such are slightly different, that's okay. Um, We're thinking about lessons here today and not about the specific numbers. So how are we going to walk through Amazon? Well, first we're going to begin with a few rules. And I'm going to use these rules when I'm talking about the company and I'm talking about these numbers. And the first rule is that expenses should be treated as expenses even if they don't involve cash outlays. One of the big adjustments that you'll see between gap and non-gap earnings is that investors will adjust cash outlay. They will treat cash spending as true spending and non-cash spending as not true spending. The biggest um, non-cash outlay that is usually discounted from non-GAAP earnings would be stock compensation. And stock-based compensation, I'll have a whole little piece that I'll cover in this podcast about stock-based compensation. But in general, stock-based compensation is an expense. You are paying your employees. You should count it as an expense. The second big one is depreciation. And we will also discuss depreciation further down in the podcast, where the podcast, again, depreciation is a real expense It is the lowering of the value of your equipment or 
property or anything along those lines. And it is an expense you will eventually have to pay cash for, even if you don't have to pay cash for today. So you should treat your expenses as expenses, even if they don't involve cash outlays. That's rule number one. Rule number two is think like an owner, not a manager. A manager is trying to present these statements in a way that will sell an investor on buying the company, which is why you should do everything you can to ignore what a manager is trying to tell you. Their incentives, in general, do not align with your incentives unless they bought all the shares of their stock that they own, and they own a lot of it, with cash, in the open market. They do not think about the company in the same way you do. They're going to think about preserving their career. They're going to think about building an empire. They're going to think about you know increasing the value of their stock options, any number of these things. They might think about publicity risk and reputation risk in ways that you do not benefit from and in ways that may harm you. Do not think like a manager, think like an owner. Which is one reason why I like companies with skin in the game where the managers bought stock in the open market, they acquired a large position of their net worth in the stock of the company that they're managing, and so then they think like an owner while being a manager. That's rare, and I think it's a quality you should look for. Um, But it's very different um, than many people managing companies. Third rule, if your estimate of free cash flow exceeds 110% of earnings, you're probably wrong. Now, this is not always true, but it's most of the time true. And I'm going to say it's true at least 75% of the time, probably at least 90% of the time. It is exceedingly rare for a company's free cash flow to exceed their earnings. I could go... Many different examples, but again, we're just using one example here today of Amazon. And the problem that Amazon has is their earnings are relatively small. Now, they have a huge amount of earnings. Um, Amazon earned $11.5 billion in 2019. That's very respectable. Um, if you bought that at a 10 times PE ratio, that would be um, that would value the company at $110 billion. If you bought it at a 20 times PE ratio, which is certainly reasonable for a company of Amazon's quality, you'd buy the company at around $220 billion. How much is Amazon valued at today? $1.6 trillion. So Amazon has a P.E. ratio of 126 instead of a P.E. ratio of 20. Again, the reason for this is because people believe that Amazon's free cash flow not only exceeds its earnings, but it substantially exceeds its earnings. It's two, three, four, five times the earnings of that are being reported. And this is where the fallacy comes into play. Um, I always appreciate the philosophy that you don't ever criticize people for by name. Um, and so I I certainly won't do that, but I, but I get in many discussions on Twitter, um, that discuss different aspects of valuing companies. And I very value that. So I, I certainly value the people that will engage with me to try and learn more about companies so that we can both learn together. Um, but for instance, you know, someone I was discussing with Amazon online mentioned that Amazon had operating cash flow of $51 billion. Now, this was a tw- trailing 12-month figure. So again, it's going to be slightly different than my numbers, but close enough to, to matter. Um, they cited capital expenditure of $24 billion, free cash flow of $27 billion, and stock-based compensation of $8 billion. What that implies is that they basically subtracted um, CapEx from operating cash flow to get the free cash flow of $27 billion, and they excluded the stock-based compensation of $8 billion. Um, they said, okay, well, if you want to still back out the stock-based compensation, you, you might get free cash flow around $21 billion. Um, you know, other ways you can use stock-based compensation to dilute your returns, and that just creates a drag of 1% or so as a shareholder. But it ignores R&D, which hides your true profits. Well, see, the problem here is, again, their estimate of free cash flow is $21 billion. The I just told you that the net income for Amazon was $11.5 billion. So they're saying free cash flow is about 200% of earnings. That's a big problem. That's not a small problem. It's a big problem. The problem is, is you're saying that the company, for whatever reason had very high free cash flow that is able to be paid out in dividends but isn't paid out in dividends 
and it, they could pay it out in dividends without impacting the company's prospects in the future. But they chose to reinvest it instead, and yet they still didn't report earnings to that scale. And this is a problem because in general, what it means when you make a profit is the profit's what's left over as you, after you pay your expenses. So if you say that your free cash flow exceeds your earnings, you're saying very clearly that for whatever reason, you're earning less money than your free cash flow. And the gap there is an expense that's not real because you're, the only way that occurs is you're going to add back some expense that you believe is not a real expense. And here I think the one that was used was R&D. If we go to Amazon's um, 10K, they invested, let's see here. Uh, this is going to be bad. Okay, so on R&D, we have, no, okay. Okay, so I don't see a specific R&D line item, but they do have a line item for something called technology and content, which they spent $35 billion on. Um, and they have general and administrative, which is $5.2 billion. So I think the R&D goes under the heading of technology and content for $35 billion. So the idea is, is that they're spending $35 billion on some sort of research and development associated with technology and content. This could also include buying stuff like um, various movies and TV shows associated with their Amazon Prime video and that sort of thing. Um, but what people are trying to do is back out this number even though they're paying money for it. So Amazon's spending money on something and yet you want to back that out and say oh well it's not real it's not a real expense well the money's gone or maybe it didn't cost cash but they're spending it in some other way but they are spending cash for these expenses r&d is something that's expensed for two very good reasons one you're paying someone to do it you, you can't research and development without paying engineers paying scientists paying um, professionals to do the research. Those salaries cost money and those salaries are money that you're going to spin out the door and it's gone. So you pay money for that. There's a reason it's an expense. The second reason is you don't capitalize R&D because there's no guarantee that it creates any value. Now it might create value, but there's no guarantee. And so the way that the accounting principles work is that you want to match up your expenses with your revenue. With R&D, that's a real big problem because there may be zero revenue associated with any R&D. Now, it certainly creates value in general for most R&D across a whole amount of spending. If you're going to spend $100 billion in R&D over 10 years, there's probably some value being created there. But did they create $5 billion in value or $500 billion in value? It's impossible to tell. So the accounting principles exclude R&D because it's an expense and you don't know if it's going to create any value. You don't know if what sort of life frame the value that's created, the asset that's created actually has. It might have zero value. It might have a lifetime of zero years or two years or 50 years. It's impossible to tell. So why is it then with this rule of estimating cash flow exceeding your earnings is probably wrong? Well, I just covered most likely it's because you're excluding an expense that's real. Um, an owner, when they look at a business, is going to think about the cash coming in. And they're certainly going to think about how they can do things like improve the tax situation. You can certainly lower your taxes by maybe taking on more debt because interest can be um, deductible. Um, you can lower your taxes by investing a lot. And this is what Amazon tries to do is they do a lot of investments, which tends to lower their taxes because those investments have large depreciation. Um, and that depreci depreciation can be deducted from taxes. But regardless, owners going to look at that cash and they're going to decide, do I want to grow the company? Do I want to take out cash? And those numbers have to be the same. If you're able to spend money on growth, then that money has to also be possible to be spent on a dividend. 
And the problem is, when you estimate Amazon has $20 billion in free cash flow, you have to consider that Amazon cannot possibly pay $20 billion in dividends on a regular basis without impacting their business because they don't earn that much money. The profits is what you can pay out minus hidden costs that the profits are overstating. And here's where it gets to be a key issue. Most of the time, net income overstates your free cash flow instead of understates it. There are rare companies that have free cash flow that that exceed earnings. These would be companies like ad agencies or insurance companies sometimes. Um, Anything with float. Something with float that doesn't require reinvestment. Um, I think maybe OTC markets, but not even think OTC markets does, but like an ad agency like Omnicom is a favorite of mine. They have this really great chart that shows their net income over the last 10, 15 years, um, charted against their total dividends and share buybacks paid out to shareholders. And it tracks the number and the total dividends and share buybacks paid out over the last 10 years exceeds their earnings over the last 10 years by 5%. Now, the only way this is possible is because they're one, they're growing and two, um, they're able to use float from their customers to pay dividends before they've earned the money. And that slight difference in time between when you've paid between when you pay the dividend and when you actually earn the money to pay that dividend um, is being provided by the customer. And so it allows them to have a 105% payout ratio. Um, And that payout ratio is very key because it's showing the upper end of what you can expect a reasonable free cash flow is compared to earnings. So in my example here, Omnicom is earning 105% or has free cash flow of 105% compared to their earnings. People are claiming that Amazon, which is a very capital intensive business, you have to buy warehouses, you have to buy equipment, you have to buy trucks, you have to do all sorts of things. Um, Amazon, they're claiming has free cash flow of 200% or 300% of earnings. And this is simply impossible. Um, it's certainly impossible for a company like Amazon being such a capital intensive business, but if you're getting numbers like this, you're calculating it wrong. Um, I'll be glad to be proven wrong and someone can teach me something here. Um, but it's basically impossible to sustain numbers like that over the long term. Could Amazon pay a $20 billion dividend tomorrow? Yes. They have the cash to do so. Could they pay a $20 billion dividend every year for the last five years and the next five years without destroying their business? No, because they don't earn enough money and their cash flow is overstating that. So, you know, people with, you know, listen to this might be like, that's ridiculous. This isn't true for Amazon. But then if I were to say the same thing for like an oil company like Exxon or Shell or something like that, um, for a small period of time recently, those companies have paid dividends higher than their free cash flow or higher than their earnings. And they've been able to do this because they have high cash flow. It's just not free cash flow. They're taking on debt in order to make those di- can sustain those dividend payments, which is reasonable because of the fluctuation in their price. And they know that the oil prices have gone, would go back up again. So they were able to sustain that even when oil prices dropped to five, 10, $15, um, because they knew that over a long period of time, the oil prices would be much higher and they would again grow to a higher profitability. That can make sense for people when you think about an oil company, but if you say it about Amazon, they tend to get upset. So let's touch on some big ideas here. This podcast is already running quite long, but we will try to cover it as best we can. So stock-based compensation. I think this is a big one. Um, Stock-based compensation is a real expense. I'm pretty sure that was my first episode of the show or one of the first episodes of the show. And it's complicated and it's confusing. So let's give a clear example here for Amazon. In 2019, Amazon recorded a $6.8 billion non-cash expense for stock-based compensation. If you were to look at non-GAAP earnings, they're likely to claim that their earnings were higher by $6.8 billion than the $11.5 billion that I, qu- that I quoted. Because this is, they did not have to pay cash to their employees in order to achieve that expense. They basically gave them stock instead of cash. The problem is, is the employees consider that compensation. If you were to then go tomorrow and say, okay, it's 2020, 
Amazon will no longer ever give stock options to their employees. A lot of employees are going to quit because you just cut their compensation by a very large degree, or they're going to go to a competitor. So if you wanted to keep those employees, you're going to have to pay them cash, and you're going to have to pay them a lot of cash to replace the stock options that you are giving them, which means that it's a real expense. And if you take it away from the employees, they will take action they will feel like they lost something. So if the employees feel like they lost something because you took away their stock options, then it means that you definitely lose something as an investor if you're giving them those stock options. Because in order to pay employees, every dollar paid to an employee is a dollar not paid to an investor, whether now or in the future. So stock options are an expense, but how big of an expense are they? Amazon claims they spent $6.8 billion on stock-based compensation in 2019. Now let's dig into that. In January 2019, Amazon reports that they had 491.2 million shares outstanding. One year later, in January 2020, they had 497.8 million. This was an increase in 6.6 million shares during that period. Which means that when Amazon claims that they had a $6.8 billion non-cash expense for giving 6.6 million shares to their employees. They're saying the value of a share of Amazon stock was about $1,000 for those employees. That's the expense that shareholders are taking on. Yet, if you take Amazon's current market price of $3,200, it would require $21.1 billion to buy back that many shares. That means for shareholders... The true cost of stock-based compensation is $21.1 billion because in order to be equalized with the value of their company according to last year's earnings, if Amazon wanted to, you know, let's say Amazon had a dividend and they wanted to maintain the same per share dividend to their uh, stockholders without diluting them, they would have had to spend the first $21 billion buying back stock. Yet they can't do this. We just claimed that you know, Amazon only earned $11.5 billion in 2019, which means that they actually lost $10 billion because they had phantom expenses of $21 billion, which they are excluding. Now, they only claim it was $6.8 billion. Which number is right? Well, you could also consider that, okay, well, maybe... Amazon's current stock price is not the number you should use because, you know, and Amazon didn't know their stock price would rise to $3,200. Well, in January 2020, Amazon was priced at $1,800 per share, which means if recognizing that they diluted shareholders by 6.6 million shares, and we use that price, and Amazon decided at the beginning of 2020, oh, this is a mistake, we're going to stop playing employees, how much are you going to have to pay employees to stop that? Or... How much are you going to have to use of shareholder money to still give employees their shares but not dilute shareholders? Well, that's going to cost $11.8 billion to buy back the shares at $1,800 per share. This means that Amazon in 2019 understated the cost of its share issuance by at least $5 billion in a single year. And this is cumulative. Every year that Amazon continues to dilute shareholders by giving the money to employees instead of shareholders means that shareholders are losing that money because it's not being stated in the non-GAAP earnings of the company. So, was stock-based compensation a $6.8 billion expense? Was it an $11.8 billion expense? Was it a $21 billion expense? What's the free cash flow from Amazon? How much money should we subtract from operating cash flow in order to reach free cash flow? to justify the shares being given to employees. What this means is that the first 6, 11, or $21 billion of Amazon's profitability is owned not by shareholders, but by employees. Because the only way for Amazon to play a dividend is to turn the company now into a Ponzi scheme. Because they're paying more stock compensation and they're diluting shareholders faster then they are paying out dividends. This would be the equivalent of a Ponzi scheme. For instance, if Amazon starts paying a $5 billion a year annual dividend, but they're paying out $10 billion 
in stock dilution. What they're really doing is they're diluting shareholders by $5 billion in order to pay shareholders $5 billion in dividends to make them feel like they're receiving a dividend, even if the company cannot possibly pay for that dividend without with cash. A good rule of thumb is if a company is diluting shareholders in, and paying a dividend, that dividend has only as much value as it would be if you also subtract the dilution in order to calculate what your dividend yield is. And you have to do it in a way, not simply by the percent being used, but as if that expense was cash to actually replace those shares. Because that's how an owner would think about it. It's not necessarily how most shareholders think about it, but that's how an owner thinks about it. So I think I've beat stock-based compensation to death on that one. The key point is, is it's not very obvious what to count stock-based compensation is as, how much of an expense it is. And because of that, I tend to avoid any and all companies that heavily dilute shareholders with stock-based compensation because what it will do is it will make the company look like it's profitable when it actually is losing money. Based on these numbers, I would say Amazon is losing money, not making a profit beyond that $11.5 billion. So making a profit there, but all that other cash flow from operations is fake because it's being used to disguise this sharehold, this stock-based compensation. So where's the other problem with Amazon? So one of the things you'll see with Amazon is let's go to the accounting statements here for the consolidated statements of cash flows. So operating activities, so you had $11.5 billion in net income. But the operating business provided $38 billion in cash flow from operations. So cash flow from operations was 38 billion and the net income was 11.5 billion or 38.5 and 11.5. So you have a difference of 27 billion dollars between net income and operating cash flow. So how much of that operating cash where did that go? Well, we said there's a difference of 27 billion dollars. Well, 21 billion dollars was depreciation and amortization of property and equipment. So that's your DNA of EBITDA. Um, net income is sometimes considered um, EBIT or earnings. Well, net income is earnings, um, but EBIT would be you know adding back your taxes and such like that. Um, but here we say that $21 billion of that $27 billion difference is depreciation and amortization, and the remaining... Six to seven billion dollars is stock-based compensation. Now, I already said that stock-based compensation is being understated, which means that your income is actually lower, like your owner's earnings is lower than the net income for Amazon. So how would I calculate Amazon's net income? Well, the first pass would be to say, okay, well, first we need to take operating cash flow of $38 billion, $38.5 billion. We're going to subtract $21.5 billion of depreciation. So 38 minus 21 leaves you with 17. So now we have $17 billion in cash flow left after we subtract depreciation. Now let's subtract an additional $11 billion in order to offset the stock compensation that I previously talked about. Now I'm not going to use the high $21 billion based on current price, but let's simply use the price at January 2020 when these... um, shares when this uh, 10K was issued. So if we subtract $11 billion from the $17 billion, you're left with $6 billion. So if on a first pass, we say that $6 billion divided by 11.5 is 52% of earnings. So we're going to say that free cash flow is 52% of earnings for Amazon. This means that Amazon's earnings overstate free cash flow because they're overvaluing the earnings which are being given away to employees instead of retained for a shareholder. But we're not done. So one of the complications with GAAP versus non-GAAP earnings is the concept of maintenance CapEx versus growth CapEx versus depreciation. So... A common way of determining growth capex, because again, we're trying to figure out how much of our cash flow 
is being used for growth. And we don't want to count that when we say um, we don't want to take away CapEx from operating cash flow simply because it was used for growth. We want to take away the amount that was used for maintenance CapEx. The excess being used for growth shouldn't devalue our, our, inst- our perception of the company. But the common way of doing this is saying that total CapEx minus depreciation is equal to growth CapEx with the idea that in order to replace your equipment, your maintenance CapEx would be approximately equal to depreciation. That's the idea underlining this assumption. The problem is, is that most environments in the United States and around the world are inflationary environments. And inflation is going to cause maintenance CapEx to exceed depreciation. So it's possible that, you know, you're buying a piece of equipment. If that piece of equipment is going to last 10 years, here's how depreciation works. You're going to say, I'm going to buy this piece of equipment for a million dollars. It's going to last 10 years. So every year, I'm going to depreciate it by $100,000 so that at the end of 10 years, it will be worth zero on my balance sheet. So you take a charge of $100,000 a year in your depreciation line to show that the value of your asset is dropping by $100,000, that there is an expense that you're going to have to replace this equipment in the future. It's not a cash expense, but it's a real expense because you're going to have to buy the equipment in the future. Well, what's the problem? Well, let's assume for a second that inflation is 3% a year. Well, if inflation is 3% a year, that means over the course of 10 years, your asset's going to be 30% more expensive. So instead of replacing the equipment for $1 million, now you have to spend $1.3 million. Well, this also means that you're understating your depreciation by 30%. Or you're understating the maintenance cost of your equipment by 30% because you need to spend an additional 30% at the end of 10 years simply to maintain your current situation. So while your depreciation line is only going to show $100,000 a year, in order to adequately reserve for your equipment, you need to be reserving for $130,000 a year. This means that in a lot of ways, your depreciation is going to understate the maintenance capex. So in our calculation, all we did was subtract depreciation. We didn't make an adjustment for CapEx. Well, now let's talk CapEx. So the capital expense for Amazon is going to be under the investing activities area of the cash flows. So Amazon purchased $16.8 billion in property and equipment during 2019. Yet They also um, had proceeds from property and equipment sales of $4 billion. Now, it can be difficult to to figure out how to use these one way. The conservative way is simply to ignore equipment sales, Um, but that can be a mistake and cause you to really undervalue a company. Um, But let's, for instance, use equipment sales here and count that as a benefit. So, We purchased $16.8 billion in equipment, and we sold $4 billion in equipment. So let's just round it off and say that there was $12.5 billion in equipment purchases. Now, Amazon only purchased $12.5 billion, and they had depreciation of $21.8 billion. Well, on the front, this might seem like Amazon's doing well. The depreciation's overstating their CapEx costs. But there's a wrinkle here. If you go to the very bottom of Amazon's cash flow statement, they have a line called property and equipment acquired under finance leases. This means that that Amazon purchased equipment without having to spend capital to purchase it. Instead, they took on an operating expense to get that equipment. So what's happening here is they acquired $13.7 billion in operating equipment. In addition to or capital equipment in addition to the $16.8 billion that they purchased, which means that total purchases of CapEx were actually $30 billion. Now, if we subtract again the $4 billion in credit, you're actually about at a net $26 billion increase in capital expense or, or 
capital equipment acquisition by Amazon, but they manipulated their their financial statements to the tune of $13 billion by using finance leases. This isn't to say that finance leases are a bad thing and that, or they aren't a beneficial thing for investors to do, but what it does do is it makes the financial statements less clear, and if you're simply using CapEx as your number, you're going to overstate the free cash flow because what's happened here is something that's more about what you would expect. CapEx is exceeding depreciation, $26 billion compared to $21.5 billion. That gap of $4.5 billion could be, could be growth CapEx, or it could be a combination of growth CapEx and understated maintenance cost. And that's what you're going to have to decide. Now, you could use my number that I said before, that their free cash flow is $6 billion, and that's giving full credit to that $4.5 billion difference in being growth CapEx, which is fine. Or it's possible that Amazon's understating it and maybe growth CapEx is only $2 billion. And that a lot of this CapEx is actually maintenance expense because they have such a large asset base. Now you're going to have to run these, these answers yourself. You're going to have to figure out yourself how you think this needs to be figured out. But it's simply to show you the complications that if you simply worry about the CapEx number, you might over or understate your expenses. Now, the true way to do this then is because some of these are being acquired under financing leases, um, that expense is showing up in the income statement because now those are being counted as part of either cost of sales or operating expenses under some other line. And without really digging into the 10K, I can't figure out where those numbers are coming out to figure out what adjustment to be made. But what I'm trying to communicate is that simply looking at the frontline numbers will cause you to massively misstate Amazon's expenses. So here I've calculated Amazon's free cash flow at $6 billion. And yet the company is valued at $1.6 trillion. Investors will either lose money on Amazon or if they make money, it's only going to be because they sell it to another investor at a higher price. It is basically impossible for Amazon to pay sufficient dividends to investors to justify their current stock price. This may take one year, five year, 10 years, or 50 years to work out, but returns for buy and hold forever investors in Amazon are going to be terrible at current stock prices, or at least if they are good, are going to defy the odds because it is unreasonable to expect a company trading at a P.E. ratio of over 100 or a price-to-free cash flow ratio of over 200 to ever justify that current price. So these were, I think, the major issues I wanted to discuss, but I have a few questions from Twitter that I wanted to incorporate into this Um podcast. So I'm going to read through them real quick and see if I can make some brief comments on them um, or to see that I haven't already answered them. So one of the questions revolves around valuation adjustments. How do you deal around valuation adjustments of land, inventory, and investments? Um, these aren't going to show up in your earnings statements generally. Um, you might see some of it if land is sold, inventory is sold, or investments are sold. You'll see differences between the value it was held on the books show up as a one-time gain. So like if you were to sell an investment as a company, they bought it at a million dollars and they sold it at $5 million, you'll see the $4 million gain show up on the income statement. Because that's not part of the business itself, I would remove that $4 million from earnings because it's not an ongoing benefit. Um, the same would be true for an investment loss. I would take that investment loss out unless I thought they would they sustainably make bad investing decisions and then I might punish the company's valuation for it. Inventory is going to be very similar. Um, the most common area where I see valuation adjustments in inventory among the companies I look at are um, usually accounting um, restatements. The inventory was overvalued or undervalued or something like that. Um I don't really worry about making those adjustments, but because typically it's not a company I'm going to be interested in. 
land valuation adjustments, that can be done when you're doing a balance sheet analysis, and it's really outside the scope of what I want to talk about today. Um, but in general, land is stays on the balance sheet at cost. And so if you bought land in the year 1900 and it's still on your balance sheet in 2000, it's going to massively understate it. Um, one of the questions is around goodwill. Goodwill can tend to be ambiguous. And, and I think that's certainly true. If you're going to dig into goodwill, especially around goodwill amortization, you have to be very careful with that um, because goodwill can often um, be a real expense, but sometimes it's not. Um, you're going to have to really judge that. Typically, I punish companies for the amortization unless I have a good reason not to. Let's see. Deferred revenue classified as a liability. So one of the problems that you'll have with companies with float is they're going to have a liability for deferred revenue. And this is the idea that they have been paid in advance for a service that they have yet to provide. And so that revenue acts as a liability, even though it's going to be money they'll receive in the future. Um, this seem this is a reasonable way of doing things. This is a reasonable way of doing things because there's always the chance that you'll have to give refunds. Um, it can give a false reading of the farm's financial conditions, certainly, because what you'll see is you'll see a liability on that balance sheet that isn't really a liability that would ever be um, show up. It's the same reason why if you look at Berkshire Hathaway's um, balance sheet, you'll see a giant liability for that is basically insurance float. Um, and as long as the company continues to grow, it will never be paid back. And so it can really act as an asset, allowing them to acquire bonds or other businesses. Um, but in general, um, it's going to be a benefit to have the deferred revenue. The key problem where you get an issue is if you if your company stops growing, um, then deferred revenue becomes a true liability because now um, – you're being paid less in advance than you used to be. And so you're going to have to give out services that you aren't receiving money for. And that can really hurt a company and can often lead towards quickly lead towards bankruptcy. So there's a reason these things are shown up in the accounting statements, um, but it can certainly affect your view of the financials. One of the big changes in accounting rules has been around operating leases. Um, they're now considered an asset with a matching liability. Um, doesn't really affect the gap versus non-gap earnings. So I'm going to skip that for now. Um, I think the big one here that I've been asked about is software and R&D being immediately expensed, even though it can be an asset like a factory machine. So this is the best counter argument against what I've talked about here. Um, I count R&D as an expense and not CapEx. I do so because the R&D has no guarantee of providing value. There's no guarantee that it's an asset that could be sold for any value in the future. If R&D is used to create a patent, that patent may or may not have value. Unlike a building, if you were to buy a building, it is often true that you can sell that building for some value. And it is a clear asset that has tangible value. Um, certainly there are value in intangible assets, but not every intangible asset has value, and it's very hard to value an intangible asset. So I treat R&D like an expense for that reason, and for the other reason I treat it as an expense is because if you don't, the underlying assumption if you don't treat R&D as an expense is that at some point in the future, one year, five year, 10 years in the future, you plan to fire all the engineers who completed that R&D, and then use that money that was used to pay those engineers to pay dividends. If you will not fire the, the engineers and scientists doing research and development in the future, and preferably on a defined date in the future, then it's a mistake to CapEx that R&D. Because what you're saying is if that R&D is actually free cash flow, Certainly R&D is a way of investing in growth sometimes, but sometimes it's a way of maintaining your business. Many companies would lose all their business 10 years from now if they didn't do constant R&D. It's not a growth mechanism. It's simply a way of maintaining the business. Same can be true for software. Software improvements 
In some companies are a way of growing the business, but in others, without software improvements, they would lose the business to other competitors. So that's not necessarily a growth expense. It could simply be a maintenance expense. Um, I could do a whole podcast on that, but I think the basic thing that I want to argue is that when I'm trying to come up with owner's earnings, I want the earnings figure that I can pay out in dividends. I cannot simultaneously pay out dividends to my investors and pay my engineers to do research and development. It cannot be done simultaneously, which means backing out research and development is going to overstate my true economic earnings. It's going to overstate owner's earnings, which is why it's not considered one of the things I would make an adjustment on. Uh, The same is true with software. Unless I'm going to fire the engineers associated with it so that I can pay the dividend, it is a real expense. You know, the best question here is that non-GAAP adjustments are either non-recurring or non-cash. The question really goes, how would you factor in non-recurring costs into a forecast for valuation? The biggest problem with non-recurring costs being included in non-GAAP earnings is something like acquisition costs um, is a very common one. I will see acquisition cost excluded from a company's reported non-GAAP earnings because those ac- that acquisition is not going to occur in the future. And yet this company tends to acquire one, two, three companies a year, every year, forever. If you're constantly acquiring companies or you will acquire companies in the future, then I count your acquisition costs, such as legal costs and other things associated with it, as a true cost because I know you're going to ex- you're going to acquire companies in the future. The only time when I would ignore an extraordinary cost is if I'm confident it will never occur in the future in some form or another. The other problem is something like, let's say with an insurance company, you might have extraordinary costs due to a one-time event like Hurricane Harvey. The problem is, is Hurricane Harvey might have been a one-time event. There's not going to be another Hurricane Harvey, but there might be an earthquake or there might be COVID-19 or there might be something else. You can't count the bad events as one time, even if that one time will never repeat, if there's always a different one time that will. If there's extraordinary events every single year in the last 10 years, then they're not really extraordinary, even if they're different events. So you have to be very careful making adjustments for non-recurring costs. You have to be truly convinced there will nothing be like that ever again, um, and that the company... Basically, a nice rule of thumb is if a company over the last 10 years only has a single year in which they report extraordinary costs, I think it's fair to take those costs out. If they have extraordinary costs every year or every other year, then they're not truly extraordinary. Um, How to deal with amortization of acquired intangibles versus total amortization. Um, Basically, that companies will amortize the intangible assets they acquire from a company, but not amortize their own intangible assets. Um, Generally, I think amortization is a trap. Certainly, there are companies that amortize stuff that isn't a real expense and will never be an expense. Um, NACO, ticker NC, does this for their customer contracts. They're not going to have to pay for new customer contracts in the future, so when they take that amortization expense, they're actually truly understating their free cash flow since the free cash flow does exceed their earnings um, because the amortization really is not an expense. So basically, if it's an expense, don't take credit, you know, don't take, don't add it back. But if it isn't an expense, if it will truly never, ever, ever be done again, then you can add it back. Most of the time, Amortization is a real expense. If you're if it's related to R and D or something like that, then you're going to continue doing R and D. So you should count that because it's it's trying to match those liabilities with the revenue. Um, the last statement was adjusting capex for operating leases. So I think I covered that with those financing leases. <sighs> this podcast has been way longer than I expected it to be, but I hope it's been helpful to you. Um, I truly believe that. What you're trying to do when you analyze a company, when you analyze a company like Amazon or analyze any other company, you're trying to understand owner's earnings. How much earnings could be used to pay dividends to shareholders without diluting those shareholders in the process? 
how much cash can be paid today by the company if it doesn't grow and it doesn't shrink. That's the number you're looking for. Nine times out of ten, that number is going to be below gap earnings, not above it. If you find that the number is above it, you're probably doing it wrong. Treat your expenses like expenses, even if they don't involve cash outlays. And think like an owner, not a manager. Hope this show has been helpful for you. The full show notes are available at diyinvesting.org episode 91. Thank you for listening. And until next time, stop paying fees, start building wealth. Thank you for listening to the DIY Investing Podcast. Please visit our website and subscribe to our email list at DIYinvesting.org for guides, videos, and resources to help make you a better investor. The DIY Investing Podcast is presented for general informational and entertainment purposes only. I have not considered your specific situation or risk profile, and I have not provided investment advice. The information presented on the DIY Investing Podcast should not be construed as investment advice. The views and opinions expressed on the DIY Investing Podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's host or sponsors. DIY Investing, its producers, sponsors, and host, Trey Henniger, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based upon information or viewpoints presented on the DIY Investing Podcast. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.